This morning, we're going to look at the audacity of Jesus and the audacity of his calling on our lives. And so we're going to start with Philippians 2. This is a, um, a passage for me that I continue just to mull over and continue to work in my mind. Is like, what, what is Paul really saying here in Philippians 2? So, let me get my slides right. So, Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being coming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So let's just define this term audacity. Because a lot of times, I, it, it's really interesting, the definition has two almost opposite definitions. The first definition is rude or disrespectful behavior. I'm sure we've seen people like, you know, all the audacity of that person to say that. That was just so rude, that was disrespectful. But the definition that I want us to use this morning is the audacity of the willingness to take a bold risk. Jesus and his willingness to take a bold risk, as outlined here in Philippians 2. The first part is the, the audacity of Jesus coming to earth. If we read there in um, verse 7, rather he made himself, I'm sorry, verse 6, we'll start in verse 6. I'm sorry, 7. Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Being made in human likeness. So, what I find really interesting about Jesus and about our life is that as we've celebrated um, at Christmas, right, there's a point in time where Jesus was born into this world. Yes, he, he had, you know, if, if this was actually a real rope, this would never end going that way. And it never ends going that way. But as it relates to us, and taking on human likeness, he had a birth date. We don't exactly know when that is. It's not necessarily December 25th. But he, a day that he was born in this world. And what I find really interesting is that he decided when he was going to be born, to whom he was going to be born, what the, what the culture was going to be like. I mean, he picked his point in time. And as, if you've heard me speak before about this and the birth of Jesus, it's not an accident because as I think we all agree, God is in the details of our lives. And he's in the details, he leaves nothing to chance. And there's a reason why he was born, to whom he was born, and in the, the culture in which he was born. It wasn't by accident. And he took a bold risk. As I mentioned, that he, he found the appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming, um, I'm sorry, made himself nothing. He gave up the advantages of heaven and of God, stepped into, to, to a degree of God, and stepped into a baby, where he was dependent upon his parents to take care of him, 
He's dependent upon Mary and Joseph to make the, make the right decision when the angel came to them and said, hey, got to get up, got to get going. Herod is going to kill everyone, all babies two years and younger. The audacity of Jesus to come to this earth at this point in time. And I find it interesting. So we're, gonna jump, we're jumping around these, these verses a little bit. But verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. So what was the mindset of Christ? He gave up the advantages of heaven. For what? He gave up the advantages so he could come to the underside of power, the underside of life, physically, as to who he was and, and where he was at, but also for us, right? We, we, we sang about that this morning, of, of, of the cross, the death of Jesus redeeming us and saving us from our own lives. For us, we didn't have a choice. We were born into this world, everyone. We were all born into this world for a certain, to certain people, to a certain family, to a certain point in time. We didn't have a choice. I still remember the day that um, my kids were born and being there in the delivery room and just waiting that expectancy of what are they going to look like? And then being born and going, oh my goodness. And we all have that feeling when we've had those, the, 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 those kids, those babies who go, this is the most beautiful, precious human being I've ever seen. We didn't have that choice. And for some of us, the cards were in our favor. For me, I was born um, July 23rd, 1973. My birthday is in two weeks. To Northwest Ohio, the flatlands of Ohio, um, in, in, in the winter, when it snowed, um, we would want to go sledding. The only place we could find a hill, an overpass. So there's a country road, goes over the highway, and so it's the side of the overpass where the grass was at. And we had to always make sure that the ditch at the bottom didn't just stop, but we could actually kind of keep sliding, otherwise the sled would stop and you'd keep rolling. Born to two amazing parents, grew up in a church, middle class, the cards were in my favor. And as a result, I had advantages. There are other people in this world that depending upon where they're born, the cards are stacked against them. Depending upon where they were born, when they were born, whether it be the inner cities, or whether it be in a different country. This is one of those things that, that with the students that, that, that we talked to them about, I was like, what if you were born just a few hundred miles south? Your life looks totally different. And the advantages that I have and that I have because of who I am is not for me to feel guilty about or feel sorry about, but it's for me to use of having the mindset of Christ for the advantage of others. Um, so, uh, like I mentioned, um, two weeks, I turned 44. Um, I think we were driving down to Mexico and my daughter, sometimes you just never know what's going to come out of her mouth next. And I think, it was, I think it was while we were driving, and just very innocently, she looks at me and goes, Daddy, when people ask you what color your hair is, you say it's black, gray, or white. <laughs> like, really, we've come to this point already? I said, it's black, just go with it, it's all black. <laughs> but not only do we have a birthday that we had no control over, and some of us were given advantages in life, there's a point in time where we are all going to die. And for the most part, we don't have a lot of say in this. We can, 
But if we continue to live life, we don't know when this date is. In the life between this knot and this knot matters. How are we going to live our life between these two dots, these two knots? Having the mindset of Christ. So the mindset, there's a Greek word called phroneo. And in studying what does it mean by mindset, having the mindset of Christ, and really this is Paul's urging for all of us, if we're a follower of Jesus, what does it mean to have the mindset of Christ? And in studying this word, People are like, well, we really don't have a great English word for this. So sometimes when you read different translations, you, just, you may see mindset or attitude. For Neo combines the deep inward feelings we have with the cognitive aspects of thinking. So it's the emotions and how we think. Maybe a better definition is this. It's not just the knowledge that we have, but the attitude in which we use that knowledge in our actions and in our behaviors. So the knowledge we have about Jesus and how he's called us into a way of life, what kind of attitude does that play out into our everyday life? How do we treat our neighbor? How do we treat our coworker? It is, because we've, I'm sure we've seen people who have this knowledge of faith in God and Jesus and the attitude in which that's played out, pretty harmful, isn't it? So it's taking, what is it, how do we see the world through Jesus' eyes? What is that mindset? Having the same mindset as Christ did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He took the advantages he had as God, came into this world, and said, I'm going to use my advantage, my privilege, for the benefit of those on the underside of life. Physically, those that, that are abused, oppressed, being treated unjustly, and spiritually for us. That without him, we continue to be under the oppression of sin. He took that advantage. He took the, the audacity of Jesus to come a bold risk into this world to, live, to take those advantages for our benefit. And he, Paul says, have that same mindset. Whatever, what, what, whatever advantages or privileges we may have, how can we use these in tangible ways for those on the underside of life? You know, we, a lot of times, growing up for me, and even recently, I've been challenged with this question. I've always asked, God, what is your will for my life? What is your will for my life? And recently, a friend of mine and my uh, professor, uh, Ken Weitzma, has kind of pushed back on that. And he said, I think we're asking the wrong question. It's not, God, what is your will for my life? If you hear that, it's pretty individualistic. And it's pretty like, what's your will for my life? His pushback is, I think the question should be, God, what is your will? What is your will? And how do I fit into that? with my gifts, with my passions, with my advantages, with my privileges. You see the difference there? God, what is your will for my life? It's small, it's my story, it's, it's, it's more confined. God, what is your will? How do I step into it? It's God's story. And we have to be part of a bigger story. Jesus talked about this when he said, um, very truly I tell you, this is John 5, 19, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. So even Jesus was looking, where is God's will? Where is he at work? Because that's where I'm going to join him. And so if you get anything from this morning, come away with that question and sit with that question. God, what is your will 
and how do I fit into it? And have your hands open and be ready for his audacious calling to you. Because it may require a bold risk. You see, Jesus made some audacious statements. Sometimes we like to kind of, let's turn the page on that one. So for instance, Matthew 6, 43 to 47, Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, okay, what's next? Um, Let's turn the page, right? How how do you practically do that? And it could be just be a neighbor or a friend. Our our house, so we have, there's two houses on on, on either side of us. Um, One house is a single lady um, that we've grown to really enjoy and getting to know. Someone who's, (coughs) excuse me, who moved here, moved to Mexico like two years ago with her husband. Like in January, she told us, her husband got sick in February, he died in March. And so just walking alongside her and getting to know her more. Our other neighbor, we've just met him, he'd been gone for a while. We've been told through stories within the neighborhood, and you know how that can be, he is the meanest man they've ever met. And so we've been kind of like, how are we going to navigate this? And for us as a family, we've just begun to have conversations like, how can we love this guy? And so right now we're planning within the next week or so to take him just a plate of cookies. Start with cookies. And build this relationship out of love and not out of fear of like, okay, because we started adding on to our house. It's right next to his property and we've been kind of tiptoeing around that. But how do we step into that? So he said, love your enemies. Another interesting statement, I think it needs to be more time, but just the extremeness of Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, I think it's important to read this instead of just talking about it. Luke 14, actually 25, 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yet, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Unless they hate their father, mother, family, your own life, you can't be my disciple. What do you do with that? But then, it wasn't just the statements he made. It was the audacious decisions he called people into. So Luke 18, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He's trying to follow the Ten Commandments. And he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? If you remember the story, what does Jesus tell him? Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. I know for me, I just want to go, okay, I think that Jesus was saying, you need to prioritize your life. You know, money shouldn't be first, it should be me. No, Jesus said, go sell everything, and then come follow me. Just a few verses later in Luke 19, he sits down with Zacchaeus. We don't know the conversation they had. What does Zacchaeus do at the end of dinner? I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, and then I'm going to redeem and make everything right with the people I stole money from, that, I've, that I extorted people money. And chances are, half of that went to the poor, and the other half of his income went to make things right. When Jesus calls Peter and Andrew in Matthew 4.18, Jesus makes another audacious call. As Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. 
comes to Peter Andrew and says, come follow me. Come into the will that I have for you. And what do they do? Immediately, drop the nets, and they go. It wasn't like, well, you know what, I need to, we're going out fishing later, um, and so I need to finish with the nets, and, and then maybe tomorrow. They made an audacious decision of, I'm stepping into, I'm going now. The call of Matthew, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. So here's Matthew. He's at the table. He's, he's actually in the process of cheating money or cheating people out, out of their money, collecting taxes for Rome, one of the, probably one of the hated people of, of the Jewish people. And Matthew, or Jesus comes up. I, I imagine he puts, him, puts his hands on the table and Matthew's sitting there and goes, Matthew, come follow me. Matthew didn't go, well, I need to finish counting all this money. You see the line that I have, and I'll do that later. He got up from the table and left. When we step into the audaciousness of Jesus and his call on our life, chances are, I'm, I'm going I'm to make an assumption here, and I could be wrong. You already know what God's calling you into. You felt that elbow. You felt that nudge. And you go, whoa, whoa, that's just too big of a risk right there. Whether that's the, the neighbor across the street, or whether that's a coworker, or whether that's actually like going somewhere else, starting something new. And you know what that elbow is. And you know that nudge of Jesus. He's calling you into the will of, his, of God's story because he sees the gifts, the passions, the abilities, the advantages you have to further his kingdom. The question is, are we willing to take that bold risk to be audacious followers of Jesus? You see, one of the, there's a Greg Boyd. He wrote a book, um, The Myth of a Christian Nation. And in there he says that God has called us out to, um, to be followers of him, to be followers of Jesus. And, and, and I can't remember the verse right now, but it says, you know, to not be of this world, right? And Boy, Greg Boy says, he's called us not to be of this world so that we can be for this world, so we can be for our neighbors, so we can be for those in the underside of life. So it's not like we separate ourselves from it, as it is now because of God's story, because of his mind, Christ's mindset of coming into this world to save and redeem it, he says, join me in that so we can together be for this world. But also know life between these two dots, there's things that happen we don't have a lot of control over. There's things that happen to us that's unexpected, whether it comes from other people or whether it comes just through life circumstances or through sicknesses. And there's things we just can't control that a lot of times we feel like just kind of derails us. And we carry those wounds, we carry those hurts, we carry those pains, we carry those sicknesses. And I know for me there are times when I'm like, God, you gotta fix this. I can't, I'm lost, I can't do anything here. The storm is raging. It's like the, the, the story of, of Jesus in the boat. You're like, wake up. 
We, don't you see us going on? I'm going to drown here. And there are times in life where it just doesn't quite work out, does it? I'm like, what's going on? The audaciousness of Jesus. When he tells the rich young ruler to sell everything you have and give it to the poor is because he says, I'm it. It's just me. That's all you need. Zacchaeus took that risk. All right, I'm in. The disciples. All the disciples took that bold risk and said, all right, I'm in. And outside of Judas, I wonder if the other 11 ever regretted that decision. The people that I've met in Mexico who've, who've made those bold decisions, you don't see regret in their eyes. And I, and I know there are people who've made bold decisions go, oh, okay, that wasn't the right decision. And that happens. That happens to a lot of people. But that's how we, under, that's how we discover the mindset of Christ is through trial and error. For, for Mindy and I going to, to Mexico, it was like, yes, this is it. We're, for us, it was like, um, everything tends to be going in this direction. So I hope and I think this is it. That's where I think a lot of following Jesus is about. Most of the time, I feel like it's a nudging. It's, you begin to see patterns and things line up. You go, okay, we need to do this. But there's these storms that happen in our life and these wounds that, that we carry that we don't have much control over. And what do we do with those? Like I said, the audaciousness of Jesus says, I'm it. It's me. It's what I did here on the cross for you. Regardless of the outcome, good or bad, he says, this is it. My wounds that I bore on the cross are enough for you. In Psalm 53, Isaiah writes this, surely, talking about Jesus, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, both physically and spiritually and mentally. He took it all. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned on our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. came across this, this story. It's actually entitled A Misreading. And as I read this, I want you to imagine this story. We've heard this story before, but it's a misreading, so the ending is a little different. Because I think it goes to where we find our refuge. Where do we find our healing? Where do we find what we need in this life between those two dots? He is sleeping in the boat, just as in the story. But he is in the bow, not the stern. And you alone are with him. There are no others in the boat. The sky is just beginning to darken and the sea to grow rough. And you are not afraid. For you know that the one who has power to calm the storm sleeps in the front of the boat. You know how the story ends. You look at him as he sleeps. He's as you have known him to be since your childhood, robed in pure white, hair hanging loosely to his shoulders, face unlined, hands tender, the very confidence and power of God. 
The storm begins to grow stronger and you move toward him to wake him. He sleeps so serenely that you pause a moment to take, one, to take it in once more, his per- peaceful beauty. Then you speak softly, tenderly, save, Lord, for I am perishing. He doesn't move, but you know how the story must end, so you say again softly, save, Lord, I am perishing. The storm grows stronger, but still he doesn't move. You raise your voice to be heard above the rising storm and call to a third time, save, Lord, I am perishing. You begin to grow uneasy at his stillness. Waves crash over the side of the boat, and your confidence begins to drain away. Teacher, do you not care if I perish? You reach out and grab his shoulder and shake him awake. He is cold to your touch. You fear that the storm grows and the sky is now charcoal gray. The water at the bottom of the boat now reaches to your knees. You sense a figure behind you, a figure that fills you with coldness. You shake him again to make him stop the storm, to make him remove the coldness. You cannot turn to look at the figure behind you. Your fear is too great. You shake him, shake him, shake him. Behind your back, the figure speaks. It says you cannot wake him, he's dead. You turn and look up at the figure. It is the very confidence and power of God. But his robe is purple, not white, and is stained with his own blood. His face is darkened by bruises, and on his head is a crown of thorns. And he is so thin, he sways as if he would fall at any moment. It is the one you have loved for so long, and you want to ask him to calm the storm. You want to ask him to shelter and save you, but he looks too weak to save anyone, even himself. But you've loved him and trusted him, so you speak. Save, Lord, for I am perishing. And he holds out his hand to you. You see the wound, externally fresh and blood glistens, reflecting unseen light. The hole is as deep and as black as the abyss. And you know without him speaking, the only shelter is within the wound. He is all we need. The audaciousness of Jesus to step into our world, to not use, to stay in heaven, to use that to his advantage, to use it for us, for the benefit of others, and for us to have the mindset of Christ and go, How can I use my life to have that mindset of Christ to serve and love others? Especially for those who are on the underside of life. And then when we feel God's nudging, we feel God's calling to have the audacity to say, all right, I'm in. I'll take that step. I don't know how it's going to end, but I'm in. And when the storms brew and they come into our life, to have the audacity to say, God, Jesus, all I need is you. Your death and your resurrection is enough. That no matter the outcome, whether this storm calms or not, you are enough. I find refuge in you. I find healing in you. And as we come this morning, let us remember that Christ, when he met with with the disciples, he broke bread. opening his body to us. So my body is broken for you. Take, eat, and do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for you for the remission of your sins.
as often as we meet together. We are to share in the communion together as a community of a body of believers that are, we hope are searching out, finding ways to live in the mindset of Christ. And as you come, if there's a storm raging in your life, come knowing that this is where you find your refuge. Even though it's easier, so much easier said than done. But to rest and to trust and to spend that time here with him.